Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Stacey Gibson and Neil Thompson for Park Avenue Fine Wines in Portland. It's January 20th, 2021. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rich. Uh, first question for both of you and whoever wants to start can start is why wine? Why wine? I'll start. Go for it. Sure. Thank you. Wine for me came from my background of uh, being raised in the south of America, southeast, uh, Southern Baptist and not drinking at all. And so for me, I missed the college party days and all that. Uh, which I made up for later, and uh, and I went right to great food. I'm addicted to food, and I started saying that way before I was old enough to drink. And then food and travel led me very naturally. I think a lot of people, this will resonate with a lot of people, it just led me to adult beverages uh, and appreciating them. And it started, I remember the moment when uh, I just stopped describing Guinness as bitter and described it as smooth and realized how could that happen. And that, from then on, Guinness was my first taste of beer and then next thing you know um, I was trying so hard to learn about wine and I went through this is the early to mid 90s and it was all about Rosemount Shiraz and then like the Perrin Brothers Cote de Rhone and all, you know we all learned and then Bogle Petit Syrah and next thing you know um, found out about more elegant wines and uh, just really got into wine full force from there and made a career of it pretty quickly mm-hmm. after that that was I can give more detail, but that was the story, and then it, and then uh, we'll get to it. But the Oregon wine came quickly after that for me. It was that simple for mm-hmm. me, my in my 20s. Mine was a little bit more roundabout. I studied political science in college, and so after I graduated, I went to D.C. and there was. I was not happy there. Um, but so I moved to New York City and I was more in like a what am I gonna do now kind of situation. And I was sort of trying all different things, working in restaurants, and I was just I kind of worked into it through that. I was just absolutely enamored with it. Um, and I like that for me the a lot of the attraction is especially coming from political science. I, I love the cultural aspect of it, the um, international aspect, just how it all all comes together. Um, it kept appealing to me more than just the, well, I, I like drinking it too, but it just, I love that it was just this like, um, I guess like holistic kind of mm-hmm. industry that brings so much together. And is so I'm, I'm definitely very outgoing. And so being on the floor of a restaurant and talking to people about it and then having the also um, interpersonal relationships that you build through it, that was like something I just absolutely loved. And, um, but also I think the sensory experience, my husband is a chef, and I think for us just this um, coming together of like just appreciating food and wine and aromas and all these and flavors is something I just like absolutely fell in love with. I like the way she said it better. <laughs> I, I just always say the romance of wine, but that was awesome. <laughs> So Neil, back to you then for a second. Once you once you wine became something you're interested in, and you kind of developed this passion for it, tell me about the the process of educating yourself and and be, making it into a career. Well, mine was unique, and I don't know. I, I think um, it was unique in that almost everyone I know now did some sort of level of W. Said or Sommelier Guild or something 
um, to help them as if a college course, or literally a college course. Um, and I missed all that, and I, I don't know which one is the, the better way, but for me, uh, scholastically wouldn't have worked. I often, I can be quoted as saying, if, if it was all about me having to flashcard learn the elevation of a slope in Chile in Maipo Valley, I would not be interested in wine. I'm not a good student, <laughs> uh, but I am very passionate. And so for me, uh, it literally just went into, um, how did I get the, 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 uh, the original question again? <laughs> Basically, how did you educate yourself educate and, and, and turn it into a was, career? Uh, that I'm thankful to people. And uh, I'm going to name a couple names, and I know they wouldn't mind at all. John Sherwood uh, took me under his wing when I was working my third job, 1995. I had a third job part-time at a little convenience store in a wealthy neighborhood in Charlotte, Myers Park. Shout out to the Laurel Market. And they had a wine section, and because I was the the nerd who was reading wine magazines during the day at my other job, uh, they were like, well, Neil, why don't you take over this wine department, wine and beer? And so I went full into it, and I had one rep who would wait at the end of his day for me in between customers. He'd wait and wait and wait for an hour at least and taste me and force me to blind taste the wines in his bag. And uh, a little while later, he said, I'm moving to Boston, and I think you should take my job at, this, at the Dreyfus Ashby uh, distributor at the time. Uh, and they're still in business today as um, grapevine distributors in North Carolina, and they are the Oregon wine mecca. It's like they, they carry the great Oregon wine book there. And I got full throttle. He said, here's what you need to do. They're going to test you. Read Kevin Israeli's book, uh, The Windows in the World Wine Book. And it wasn't even in color back then. It was just this like beige beige and brown book and I this is the only wine book I've ever really read I'm not I'm actually not proud of that I'm not like look at this anyone can do it. I it's only cover to cover book I've read I own a lot of good books though and uh, reference them but I read it and I tested and passed with flying colors and had a couple interviews and got hired and then I just got thrown headfirst into uh, Burgundy and Oregon mainly hardcore and I had to swim I had to sink or swim and so I just uh, learned through listening to people, meeting people, and, and meeting people with more experience who really took me under their wing. Um, and we can get to this later, but that's how I ended up in Oregon too, but I'm sure we'll get to that. But it was all about great people in my life. And I think my passion for it kind of helped some of the old school guys and gals take me under their wing. Mm -hmm. And that's, that was, that's my answer. Mm -hmm. And then I just eat and drink and travel. That's all I do, so. <laughs> Whatever for you, Stacey, but tell, tell me about turning into a career. Yeah, I had a much more structured uh, education into wine because I was trying to figure out what I was going to do when I was living in New York City. And so I did take some classes at ICE and at uh, WSET classes. And uh, from there, um, kind of, I want to tell the short version. There's, I feel like there's a lot you cut out, but um, I use those to kind of squirrel my way to get promoted um, at jobs. When I was at Mama Fuku, I was like a seller rat and I um, just was begging for more responsibility and eventually they gave it to me, um, which was great. But uh, I really, really took my education really further when uh, from there I went to work at Cork Buzz with Laura Manick, who's an MS, who is just um, an amazing woman and amazing teacher, um, amazing businesswoman as well. Uh, and she really puts a lot of work into educating her employees mm -hmm. like intensely and it's really amazing and so we would blind taste during pre-service 
Um, she really supported us in uh, taking the quartermaster um, test. So I started working for her, and back then, it, this was in 2013, it was uh, a little easier to kind of move through. So I, within a year, I took certified, intro certified, and then advanced as well. So, um, but she really mentored me to take the advanced. Um, so I'm much more when, so I do love to travel, and but I, I love, I'm more of a book person. I would like, I, I love to read, and I love, I, I like, I like me some flashcards too. Um, she's the best student I've ever met. <laughs> she's crazy. She's inspirational. Um, Exhausting. <laughs> But, and I mean, of course, travel has a lot to do with that, though, too. Um, mm -hmm. Like my first, the first like major wine region, besides like Long Island or the Finger Lakes, uh, that I ever traveled to was Burgundy uh, in 2010 when I was first, first starting out um, before I even worked at, or no, when I worked at Corkbus. And so just really like digging in mm -hmm. to that. Um, and mentor, I mean, t mentors are, are just absolutely instrumental with that, too. Laura, when I worked at Mama Fuku, I worked under Teresa Pow Pow, who's now in Boston, and she's amazing. Um, and then people like Bernie Sun, who um, he got us all of our appointments in Burgundy, which could not have done on my own. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, help people. Um, there's only so much you can read in a book, mm -hmm. and especially when it comes to tasting and when it comes to understanding wine beyond the facts, you really have to like hear other people's experiences. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was I was very lucky to be in a really rich sommelier community in New York City, mm -hmm. um, for sure. So I'm curious about the actual the the, the learning learning to taste, learning learning wines by taste, and, and 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 tell me about the process of that for each of you in terms of building your palate and building your education that way, and discovering what it was you liked and wanted to learn more about. Uh, I guess I'll go first again. Yeah, Keep it rolling. So. <laughs> um, it it's gonna follow perfectly in in line with what I was just saying. I got um, I just kept getting thrown into things, and so I just found myself there, which worked out beautifully. So uh, in North Carolina, we did a lot of uh, tastings at the company and I would hang out at restaurants after my shift and people would let me taste things. But it really started in 2000 when I moved here in early 2000, when I um, immediately, well, I had landed a job and moved out here to sell the Kermit Lynch book and at a now defunct distributor. Um, but they had the whole Kermit Lynch portfolio. It was not split up at the time. It was everything, Italy, France. And um, I was very, very lucky to immediately get ushered into, uh, let's see, Betterford International took me to Italy in 01, all over Italy. And then Kermit Lynch uh, got to go on the buying trip in January 2002. And I just kept finding that, that entree to get in there. And then I just literally stood in cellars learning how to spit and not look like an idiot and how to freeze and not look like a total wuss, you know? And, uh, and that was it, I just kept doing it over and over. And then I had, um, uh, well, I'm probably jumping ahead a bit, but my last job I had before we opened this place was a great job in another wine shop for 11 years where I just was lucky enough to hang out with this old guard of people who would come in every Saturday night and open every 64 Barolo you've ever read about, every Burgundy, every Bordeaux, every vintage that we all just dream about. I was very, very lucky and blessed and, and happy to meet, A, these characters, who I be, am still very good friends with those who are still with us, and then um, and just taste these great wines. And they were so generous, and they loved that all of us younger 
uh, and even younger than me, some of the employees there just were so passionate and we'd hang out after work and, and get to taste. So learned how to taste, learned listen to people talking, and it was nice that they were rarely industry people. So we didn't use too much industry speak. We would just say what we felt about a wine, mm -hmm. emotionally or physically. And um, that just helped, my, my mind always grabs onto something and it goes crazy. So it just helped me create my own vocabulary and learn how to taste with other people. And mm -hmm. it was great. Mm -hmm. That's, that's pretty much it. Again, I, I didn't have like a, yeah, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> I was very much involved in tasting groups and uh, especially because I was really following the Court of Master Sommelier's um, track. I, we were really following the grid as I learned. Mm -hmm. uh, so as I mentioned, when I worked at, uh, I, well, I always had tasting groups even before that, but they were, they would change as, as I got more advanced and, um, you know, I can kind of think about some friends who actually are really, uh, my friend Chris Rafferty and I, he now runs the program at uh, Gramercy Tavern. And uh, we had this like, me, him, and another friend of ours, Laura, like we would just taste wine and, and it was so adorable to look back at it now because we would just kind of like be in the apartment just being like, so what are, what are, you, what are you getting, you know? And then, you know, it's fast adorable. forward, it's adorable, it really is. <laughs> um, but then from there, I mean, we really, uh, especially once I started working towards the court, um, doing the grid, meeting weekly, you know, like we would be, I, it was quite rigorous. Um, and we would time it, do it like we were all business, mm -hmm. um, which I appreciated maybe just for my personality. I just think that um, it really helped me to really, I mean, just that kind of discipline, it just, I really enjoyed it. And I'm defining, when you're comparing wines and you have things right next to each other and you're really saying like, is this really high acid? Is this really low acid? And calibrating your own palate and really understanding that. For me, that was really helpful. Um, and I think it's definitely helped me, it really helped me grasp the world of wine too. I, at first, when I was getting into wine, it was, especially with tasting, it's so, it feels chaotic. It feels like, how are you ever going to tell the difference between or when you when there is it is funny we taste so differently and he's much more um, like oh this tastes like um, this cereal. one this one cereal I had this one day when I was five <laughs> years old and I'm like this and I just I kind of really bring my own arsenal of tasting notes that I think are I think it, I don't think there's one over the other but that's definitely um, where I come from and then I'm like I think I'm more like. Well, this is kind of medium plus tannin. This isn't high tannin at all. She's like, usually right. <laughs> Yesterday, you're like, botrytis. I was like, why didn't I say botrytis? Like, how did I not get that? It's obvious. So, but then that kind of goes hand in hand with having access to, it's very hard. And I know when you're young in the industry, it's really tough, but having access to people opening really nice wines, which I did have in New York. And um, when I moved to Oregon, it was, it's a different community. I didn't have that as much um, until kind of working here, but um, but it's uh, someone opening, you know, just having like a customer open a 64 Barolo and you get to taste it when you open it. Like that's, you have to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really tough. Not, it's not the a, game changer. It is, yeah. Again, I'm, I'm uh, incredibly lucky. I don't know how, I just was in the right place at the right time for mm -hmm. that. Cause I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. And I should have mentioned, I do have a monthly wine tasting group when it's not a uh, pandemic. Um, and we open great wines mm -hmm. too. So that's another opportunity mm -hmm. as a monthly wine group with a theme. Mm -hmm. I'd like to address the grid for a minute. Um, so I'm 50, so I'm allowed to be a little bit curmudgeonly. <laughs> Curmudgeon but, away. <laughs> but this is what's interesting to me, Rich, is that um, 
is that I find, so again, I would be horrible if I had to be a student about it. So I like to kind of pick fun some. And a lot of our friends who are incredible sommeliers in this town, I mean, like really making a name for themselves. And they're the new generation. And I think it's awesome. But they'll come, we'll let them gather here and do tasting groups because we have space for that, obviously. And, uh, and so I'll hear, I can hear like medium, they'll split off into little groups and I'll hear like clarity, medium plus, and this and that. And I, so all sarcasm aside, my personal problem with that idea and someone learning for the first time, like I just got into wine six months ago and I'm learning about clarity plus or the minus or whatever, <laughs> the things with the clarities. Uh, my problem is, Loculation. it's so funny how a year ago, clarity seemed to be being graded as, uh, and I'm, everyone's gonna say, that's not what we're doing, as like, a plus or a minus, a good or a bad. But then those same uh, younger people seem to now be into the cloudiest of all wines, the unfiltered, the orange wines. And now those are cool. But a year ago, those would have been deemed unworthy of consuming. So I wonder, and I mean this sincerely, if they're maybe missing, I, I wish everyone could like, I wish we could do like a Vulcan mind read where I could like show them the thing that happened to me and experientially and just letting things happen where 1999 LaPierre Morgan had Brett in it, but we used to call it terroir. And now people get mad if you say that. And it isn't terroir, but it was a part of that tradition mm -hmm. at that time. So therefore the terroir at that time, in my opinion. And so I wish people could, uh, could have a little of both and just experience from an emotional standpoint and get to know how something was made and be like, well, that is what it is and maybe I don't like it, but understanding. And that's where I hope that wine students getting into it now will allow themselves to, to not feel like, well, the crowd's gonna say, I'm dumb if I like this mm -hmm. wine. And so that's my only fear with like stark, like this is the only way is mm -hmm. these charts and things. And I hope everyone doesn't do that. I probably totally missed the mark and they'll be like, that's not what we're doing. But. <laughs> I won't I think listen it's just not to whatever, them. It's not the only thing. And I think that then it's each person's personality. Like mm -hmm. some people can take the grid too seriously. And we've all known someone who are like out to dinner who are like, and you're just like, is time to cool right. that? You know, like, like 2 a.m. at a party. Is, like, yeah, has anyone like, revisited this Shannon? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, just stop. There's <laughs> a dance party in the living room. Stop. <laughs> just do the dance party. Yeah. So I do think that there is. I mean, I think anyone who does the grid is going to have fun later too. Not anyone, though. That's, I think then that's just a personality thing. Yeah. With a little bit of fault. You can't, you know, you can't be too serious all the time. Because I know a lot of sommeliers, a lot of masters and advanced people who are like diehard to the grid and like you get them out to dinner and they, they're, they're having fun. They're not, they're enjoying it. Yeah, they're, that's the best. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to let you guys go for a while. I, mean, <laughs> I don't need to ask any more questions. Let's just point, point, counterpoint. Well, the kids. The kids these days. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm gonna come off kids. like. <laughs> so, Emil, you mentioned earlier that that Oregon wine, because you were kind of thrown into it early, but you 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 were attracted to it immediately. Mm -hmm. So, tell me about some of your early kind of Oregon wine experiences. What what you had and, and what kind of spoke to you about it, and and then about coming to Oregon and, and sort of discovering it for yourself. Sure. So uh, it could be a long version, but it doesn't need to be. Um, so I'll kind of chop into things. And that is that because I got thrown into Burgundy from a Dreyfus Ashby house, so mostly Druin, whose style to this day, I really respect. Um, I like how Druin, I know they're a huge producer and everyone, oh, they're so big and the corporate, but A, they're fully biodynamic. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. And B, 
Uh, they were before it, it, any of the cool kids were talking about it either. So, um, and, and their wines are beautiful. They're real pretty. So I think of their Von Romanet or their Amarus, which none of us can afford anymore, but that's how it goes. Um, they're so pretty. And then while I was crash coursing on that wine um, and the whites as well, then all of a sudden I was tasting Amity 1986 and, uh, and um, some of the, so even some of the lesser vintages like 87, but those are the ones I was selling from Oregon, like Elk Cove before Adam, I think Adam was just starting to take over, but his father was making them. And those were these Burgundian seeming wines that made me think, how is this happening? Because I, I had only had delicious California Pinots, but they were just that other style. Even you know, Russian River and Sonoma, they were just a little bigger and fruitier, which is delicious too. But I was like, something's up in Oregon. And so I planned a trip to visit my producers and I came out and next thing I knew, um, uh, some of the old school names like Craig Hedstrom and um, um, uh, Doyle Hinman uh, and those guys, they all super took me under their wing. They had mostly done visits with me to my accounts in North Carolina. And they said, when you come out, let me take you around. And they did. Uh, and all the old Lima crew and everyone. And next thing I knew, I came out here to visit. And by the time I left my visit here, I had arranged a home to live in, a job, uh, and loaded a moving truck and moved out here. It was crazy. And so <clears throat> that was what, so I was already selling the Oregon wines, fell in love with them. I knew they were pretty and aromatic and understated. And I knew people like Myron Redford wore like cut off jeans and swam in his homemade pool at his trailer. And I was like, I need to live there. <laughs> so that's, that is exactly uh, why I came out here. And I said, I, so I went home and I said, I'm moving to Portland and people said, well, have you been? I said, well, I just visited, but that's it. I'm, I'm literally moving there right now. And everyone's like, what are you doing? So I came out and moved up on Hill Hill and took a job with that, with Vintage House at mm -hmm. the time. <clears throat> and started selling. They also had quite a bit of Oregon wine too, and they're more so the California Zen and Kermit Lynch House. That was like the main things, but also Oregon wine. And so I started. Uh, oh, and then my next chapter would be that because I sold Kermit Lynch, all great winemakers in the valley drink French wine. That's like a thing. So they had me unloading my trunk full, my little Nissan Sentra trunk full of Kermit Lynch wines to them for personal consumption on the regular. Michael Beakley, thanks for paying my rent. Um, and he was at Druin at the time, that was fun. So um, that was how, I just was like drinking, selling, hanging out with all the crew at Dundee Bistro back then. We all just hung out drinking great wines and they were also like one shiny nickel back then. Mm -hmm. So we could. <laughs> and, uh, and I did say one copper penny, I, I brought it up you, a Oh notch. my God, that's inflation. But that was, uh, <laughs> and I just, this is so much fun. Thinking back, like it was, uh, Dundee Bistro was, uh, you know, Tom Sicta, who is really important in our industry now, and then after him, Tony Williams, they were the managers of the Dundee uh, wine tasting, the Ponzi wine tasting bar, and I got to know them, and we tasted together, uh, Tom first, and, and then Tony. And then um, uh, after Anthony Filberti left to open his amazing Ant Hill Winery in California, is the buyer at Dundee Bistro, mm -hmm. Erica Landon came in. And we were became fast friends and loved tasting Burgundy and talking about white Burgundy together, and now look what she's doing. I mean, she and Ken are making some of the most Oregon slash Burgundy influenced mm -hmm. uh, Oregon Chardonnays out there. Mm -hmm. So that, that was my crew. And then that's how I just kept staying in love with Oregon wine. Even though we were tasting a lot of French wine and other wines, mm -hmm. we were mixing it up with our brands we worked for and just having a great time. And to this day, we love and respect and or they make the best Oregon wines. Mm -hmm. That's the short version, mm -hmm. believe it or not. I know, I'm like, 
What was the question? Mm -hmm. Why Oregon? Is that the <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so Stacy, I'm curious with you. What, what brought you to Oregon, and what kind of what were your kind of initial impressions of Oregon wine? What, when did you first have it, and what did you kind of what did you yeah. kind of think of it? I think one of the first ones that I can remember is Big Table Farm when I was working at Momofuku. Um, I didn't get to meet Claire at the time, but I know she had been there for a buying trip, and I didn't have any context. Um, but my uh, um, like corporate beverage director had bought some for her location of, and so I was like, oh, this is cool. So she's like, I committed you to some, you don't have to take it, but, and I was like, I'll take it. And I was blown away by the Pinot. Um, and so that was kind of my little toe dip. And then it sort of went from there. And by the time I, um, I'm trying to, so then by the time I was at Cork Buzz, I had really developed a love for Oregon wine. And, um, there was actually, uh, thinking of Claire Carver, who's such a delight. She, they did like a big like uh, Pinot in the city, um, and all the winemakers came to Corkbus after, and I got to know Claire pretty well too. Um, but really, what kind of sparked it was I decided I wanted to work a harvest in Oregon mm -hmm. or somewhere, and I was drawn to Oregon just kind of because this I was developing this really strong relationship to the wines, and I just enjoyed every Oregon wine that I had tasted. I was just stunned, um, and. Uh, Brian O'Donnell came to Corkbus. He grew up in Queens, so he well him he travels to New York, the New York market pretty frequently, anyways. But he has a strong connection to New York, and he had his little Belpont uh, jacket on, sitting at the bar at Corkbus. And so I was like, "Hey, is it you from Oregon?" <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, smooth. That's smooth. <laughs> so he and I started a relationship that is still really strong today, and. Jill and uh, him and his whole family. I just um, adore them. And so when I, uh, Laura just said that, um, she, was, she was like, you can have three weeks off to go work harvest. And she had done that in her past in Champagne, so she was so supportive. So I was like, Oregon, that's it. Um, and Jason Lett had also, he had done so many um, tastings in New York at that time with older vintages. And he and Laura have a really strong relationship too. So I, uh, had this really amazing experience where I reached out to Jason and Brian. I was like, who can I work harvest with? Um, and Brian uh, said, you can come stay with me. And so I did like about 10-ish days with Brian and then 10-ish uh, days with um, Thomas at Anami. Um, and when I was staying, when I was working harvest at Anami, I was staying at the outcrop house on the Irie property, um, which was actually, hilarious it sounds really glamorous it's a really beautiful house i don't know if you've ever been in it it has this like bathroom with this huge tiled tub that looks out over the um it looks i guess it's um north i think it looks north right onto like the original vines um and the first night i stayed there it lost power and it was terrifying <laughs> it was so i mean it can i mean it's, it was dark you know and it's this huge it's like this it's not a mansion, but it's, it's a big house for one person. And I like, and I like called Jason and he's like, come on down to the winery, um, which is really, which is really great. So, um, but it was, it was terrifying. It's very cool. I mean, as I'm sure you guys, there's a, I'm, I'm a city girl when you lose power in, I am, in I am Dundee. rolling on the inside right now. I've never heard that. That is hilarious. I'm just like, like, the, oh, and there was a noise. I, like there was like a raccoon in the trash cans or something. And I was just like, getting out of here. It was like the quietest I've ever, um, no, it's like one of the quietest experiences of my life. Um, so, uh, that was just amazing. Um, I have very fond memories, especially of Belpont. Um, 
just I stayed at the neighbor's house um, and they had a um, they had a, 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 go, a golf cart and so at the end of you'd work harvest like at the end of the day we'd go like kind of go home change relax a little bit and then dinner would be at Brian and Jill's every night and it was these amazing dinners he'd get into the cellar Jill would make these just epic meals and um, I would just like have this little golf cart and it didn't have headlights and so I had a flashlight that I had to hold around the windshield and I would be driving and she the vineyards. Fast. I'm a very aggressive driver. I'm a New England driver for sure. Um, and so uh, I'm like, and then so I go and then I get a little, you know, we're just drinking, drinking some wine. And then I'm like trying to get back in the dark with this flashlight around I'm the windshield. I'm loving this so much right now. <laughs> it was fun. It was really fun. Um, I. Now and I'm that is a perfect me. Oregon wine store. <laughs> that is Oregon. That's different than, yeah, that's yeah. not anywhere but yeah. Oregon. I will say there were no public roads involved in this. This was through vineyards. This relatively safe. Relatively <laughs> Man, I swear to God, if a raccoon had jumped out onto your cart with you one of those nights, I would literally, if I could go back in time and pay someone a hundred dollars to make that happen, <laughs> I would. So, uh, that's why Oregon, because of, no, so um, so just like that, and then I went back to New York after that great experience, and I just I mean that's where like something like the love the deep love of something just kind of gets into you. And my husband and I were really looking to move to leave New York. We just um, we had no idea how we were going to have a family and like keep working. He, I mean, he was like a line cook in New York City. I mean, he was he has a much healthier lifestyle now. Let's say that that was not. <laughs> Um, and so we were just like, we got, you know, how are we going to like grow up, I guess. Um, and so Portland and just, and Oregon just was, it was, it was kind of a no brainer, like where we're just like, so that's where we're going to go. Um, and so we just, uh, and, and so much of that has to do with the wine industry. Like that's why, I mean, that's like why we're here. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we were thinking of some other places and I was like, but, but we, like, I want to be near the Willamette Valley. So, um, I think it's also, and then for, and then a big part of it for me too is um, I uh, is IPNC as well. Um, I just uh, so when I was about to move to, I knew I was going to move to Oregon, and I um, got connected with some people, and I became a, a major d. And so I when I was still living in New York, and I came here and worked my first IPNC in 2013, and it was like it really like sealed it for me. Um, and I actually got a job offer when I was at IPNC, and so I like quit my job when I got home, and I was like living in Oregon two weeks later. Yeah, well, that's similar yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah. and so um, that just like felt really natural, and yeah, IPNC has been Linfield is love me some Linfield, <laughs> love me some Pio, um, so <laughs> a lot of good memories there too. But so yeah, it's just there's a lot. It just like all arrows pointed to the to Oregon and the Willamette Valley for me. I like your story a lot because it's so IPNC, Oregon, worked harvest, and I just, mine's not quite as romantic as that, but I just ended up around it and do love it. I mean, sure. it's a really special place. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're it out is. in the vineyards and oh the people God. are just, it's not unlike, it's, it's a very singular community, I think, in terms of wine production. Just mm. the feeling of winemakers and, and just, Everyone asking to borrow each other's bottling, labeling machines. Yeah, for and, better I love, or worse. and I love you hear winemakers say like that's not nor normal. Like a lot mm -hmm. of wine regions, you can't 
you know, those, mm -hmm. you know, not to name anybody, you know, like that's, that is like the fact that the community here, it just, it really resonates, I think, and translates to the wines too. I just think they're so, uh, they're they, tasty. They are, yeah, totally, <laughs> totally unique too. Those are some excellent coming to Oregon stories. I am very appreciative to have those. Um, for, for both of you, again, I'm, I'm sort of curious about um, coming to Oregon to sell wine. I mean, you're sell, selling wine here in Oregon. Tell me about how it was, what, what the, uh, the industry was like in terms of sales at that point. Where, where, what were the consumers like? What was the education level of consumers like? What was the interest like of consumers as you were selling wine here? And, and how have you seen it change since you've been selling? There's only one major change, and uh, I don't need, I, I was thinking, oh, I should have prepped for a question like that, but I don't need to. There, I, it's very, it's, to me, it stands out. There's one change. Uh, unfortunately, I don't like it, but I do believe that um, we didn't have smartphones at all, let alone Instagram, when I started here. So it was very community-driven. You'd have your restaurants that we'd all meet up at and hang out at to let us stay after hours or use a tasting room, and we'd all hang out or get to know, hang out with the chef and drink and talk. It was very, very personal. Mm -hmm. I and mean, that was the only way you could do it. Mm -hmm. And um, now we can all share so quickly on Instagram or something, and then someone will like make an ugly comment about well how do you like that that one's this or that or they might say i agree with you but it's not it doesn't feel personal to me especially during covid when we're not getting together so much at all mm -hmm. um but um that to me that's the number one difference and i keep telling stacy how grateful i am to um i would be afraid to run the shop alone right now at 50 because i do believe i might lose touch and uh stacy is at a one level age group wise like that i that would is required to run this shop and then we'll probably bring in staff who will stay with us for the next decades who will do the same mm -hmm. and who will be able to adapt and know what really needs to happen because those are important tools but uh yeah i'll say I, I wouldn't trade it for the world though i really liked that personal way of mm -hmm. um just hanging out tasting tasting groups meeting up for dinners going to houses and mm -hmm. and that was it i might have left the original question, but that was it. Okay. All right. And Stacey, when you were hired to come out here, what was your kind of initial job in Oregon? Um, I worked at Olympia Provisions. Um, I was a manager. Um, so I didn't get to do the wine list at the time, but I came, like I was trying to stay really engaged. Um, so my first buying job was, thanks to Erica Landon, patron. Amazing. <laughs> Um, so she uh, she was moving on from uh, she was running the Blue Hour Group uh, restaurants and so um, she recommended me for the job and she really like shepherded me into that position um, and that was really uh, that was awesome because Clark Lewis had um, Oregon it was Oregon and Italy um, 23 Hoyt all domestic um, and then Blue Hour was this great uh, had a chance like everything was divided by ABA I mean it was like a, a bit one of the bigger lists the closest fine dining list um, in Oregon that I've experienced because in Portland, I mean, there's there's more, but um, it's not that common. Um, it wasn't that common past times there, sadly. Um, but uh, so that was my first kind of buying mm -hmm. experience with mm -hmm. Oregon, um, buying and selling. Um, although I, w I didn't work the floor when I worked at those restaurants, which um, was, it was a good experience, but I like, the personal, more uh, personal communication with guests and customers. It's a lot more fun that way. Um, so uh, then I moved over to the Woodsman and was doing the list there, which was fun. 
um, small but really fun, and I was really able to champion smaller producers that I was just so excited about. Um, and then I came here, and yeah, so I love that um, people are, I guess, yeah, it's easy to lose the original question when you just start talking about random stuff, but um, I, yeah, I, I mean, I would say for me seeing how, I think it's really cool to see how engaged uh, tourists and locals are with, especially smaller producers and then really dis like distinctions in AVAs. Like really, like I feel like people are going so much deeper over the years and that's kind of a cool shift to see. And I think as, I guess I don't have too much comparison, um, especially to you, but I, I see some of our customers who are aging Oregon Pinot and Chard and, and then opening them and talking about like the way 20 year old vintages are changing and other people, and I guess it's, I guess Instagram is such an interesting aspect to that because then people are able to communicate those deeper and quicker, um, mm -hmm. and really talk about Oregon wine in the same way Wider that audience. you would that we all talk about Burgundy or mm -hmm. you know like really. Um, That's true. It certainly makes it relevant mm -hmm. to the world, mm -hmm. and then spreads out the uh, supply even mm -hmm. more. <laughs> yeah, and it's great <coughs> to see. Me. Also, it's great to see celebrities. Um, like the Blazers, they like Instagram about Oregon wine all the time. You're like, that's so cool. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, that's awesome. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of curious about, because you've spent a lot of time in retail before opening, before this shop. So I'm sort of curious about the, yeah. the sort of the changes you've seen in, in, in the retail game and, and, and in Stacy's point about customers changing and the, the kind of deeper dive. Is that something you noticed as well? Did you notice customers who had deeper questions and more knowledge when they came to you than, than when you started? Um, I think so. T technically, no, but I think the way they ask it, because of getting a little information from Instagram or somewhere, then yes. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll back up in case it doesn't come up later in the, in the interview, that I did switch to, uh, from distribution, it was in 03, that I opened the first market of choice. Steve mm -hmm. Johnson hired me to open the first market of choice in Portland, mm -hmm. uh, down on Chowilla Road. It's a little tiny store that closed since then. Um, but that I want to tell you and tell our viewers that I love the personal, what we're talking about, the personal aspect. So distribution was great because I was hanging out with, with winemakers and wine people and wine restaurateurs, which I would never trade back. But I remember thinking, even though I was doing well at that and really liked it, um, I just missed that retail aspect. Mm -hmm. my, my favorite job thus far had been that little shop I told you about, my third job, you know, um, where I just loved talking to people about wine and we got so excited. So uh, that opportunity came up and took that job for two years and then went to one of the more renowned, been around forever wine shops, kind of the stalwart uh, old school shop in Portland for 11 years. Um, and then had this wonderful opportunity to open the only full-scale full wine shop in all of downtown Portland, which still blows my mind, but I'm glad for it, because here we are. Um, but as far as an international wine shop, we're the only one downtown. So that opportunity was glaring me in the face, so I joined a team of people to do that. Um, and all that to say that that was what I had to have was that personal interaction. And it with customers is great, because you become friends. Next thing you know, you're at each other's houses for dinner and getting to know each other and just having a great time all over again sharing each other's different sellers and tastes. Um, and so with that in mind, uh, then to how are people, like I'm thinking about that, how Instagram gets people um, thinking they know, like they'll, they'll just 
they're not really into wine. Like they're into a lot of things now. Everyone's into a lot of things a little bit. And so it takes a lot of uh, hand-holding and like finding out what they really mean, what are they really looking for. So that has changed. It used to be, people came to me at one of my old shops, they were kind of a wine person. They typically traveled the world a lot. They were like, I just got back from the Loire and do you have any Somar Champagny Rouge? Uh, and I'm like, yes, I have several. Thank you so much for asking. And, um, and it isn't like that now. So it, and I'm not going to say bad or better or worse, but that was what I was used to. And mm -hmm. I'm adapting now to, um, do you have orange wine? And that's the topic. Now, so it isn't a region or a history. And then we start telling them history and about, you know, Georgia and the birthplace of wine since recorded history. They didn't even know. They're like, oh, wow. And so th it's a different way of mm -hmm. educating, learning and tasting now. But it's a lot more one-on-one now. The typical wine drinker used to be um, maybe already a little bit more advanced, which might be why people thought wine was for snobs. And so now that's going away. Mm -hmm. That's the good news. Mm -hmm. Now people are like, I don't know, so tell me. Mm -hmm. so it's not, yeah, snobbery is going away. Mm -hmm. Or the uh, people thought it was snobbery. A lot of times I don't think it was, but uh, that's going away. Mm -hmm. So that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Rambling. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think. It's a good, I mean, what you're speaking to is like, for me, that, that, that customer that is older, possibly male, um, and who's like, Maybe. I want us some more Chauvigny, like that is so far apart from my wine experience and from my, like what my community, even with age, I mean, gender, I guess, but, um, and so I think it's so cool to know, especially the people in, you know, in the 20, in their twenties and thirties that, um, I know that are like, they, they get excited when I work in wine and they're like, well, tell me about it. And just to, I feel like the world of wine is becoming so much more accessible. And so you do get, I, I don't know if I have a point, but, but you it do is. get like those people who, it is more 101 in a, in a good way because more people who don't know about wine are willing to walk into a wine shop. Mm -hmm. that, my only fear is that they'll, you'll start investing a lot of time. We're, we're very busy, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, so my fear is that uh, a lot of 101 takes a lot of time and energy, which is great, except we all know that a lot of those people won't pursue that later. They're, they heard about it, it's cool for a minute, and then maybe they'll move on to watches or something, which seems to be a thing that is a natural transition or cars or something. And, and then I'm like, oh man, I need that time back. But, but, but then someone's gonna come along who we take them under our wing and they are super into wine. Mm -hmm. And then they become not only a great customer, which is great for us, but a friend and someone to spend the rest of our wine drinking years together mm -hmm. with. So that's, it's, yeah, it's just different. That's all. Mm -hmm. You talked about the, the opportunity for Park Avenue. So tell us about the kind of the origin of this place and, and mm -hmm. what, what brought you aboard. So uh, there was a team of people uh, a couple of investors, idea people who had a concept for this old historic space, the buildings from the early 1900s. It's the old Calumet Hotel. Uh, it is registered historic. It's been fully retrofitted and fixed up over the years. It's really nice. Um, and it was sitting empty from a huge, about a 12,000 square feet of space that was the Brasserie Montmartre, and it was here for decades and decades. And to this day, we have customers who had their high school prom, their 25th wedding anniversary, and everything in between here in the space. So we hear that a lot. Oh, this was the Brasserie. Indeed, it was. Um, and then that, after three owners and 35 years, I think, that finally had had its last 
you know, moments. And so that closed down and the space was just vacant for a year and a half, which is not great for the landlord who has beautiful apartments above it and was looking to put something in. So we came to him with this concept for a wine shop. He loved it. And um, that's what we did. So we built out a, we took uh, two of the three levels. We don't have the ballroom upstairs. We do the basement level with member lounges, lockers, event space, cold storage, uh, classroom, dinner room, all of that, and two kitchens. Well, uh, one kitchen upstairs and downstairs. And then the beautiful wine bar in the front, which is our crowning jewel. The marble floor was like our major investment. And the four-story neon sign out front also. <laughs> But um, it's, the, it's so beautiful to walk into the wine bar first and then look back and we hear all the time, oh, I thought this was a little storefront. And they look back into this expanse of thousands of square feet of, of wine retail. Um, and so that, that was the vision we had. And like I say, the building owner was like, absolutely, let's do that. And then we were very lucky to have Stacy join us as our bar manager a little bit later after we got up and running and trying to get her feet under us and figure out our direction. Um, and then it became evident very quickly to us partners that Stacy Gibson was partner material to say the least. And so we asked her to join us uh, as a partner here and then that's the deal, we're the team. So we're the operating team here. And, uh, and our goal was to be, we knew because we put ourselves in the middle of all the luxury hotels, including the new ones that are being built as we speak, that Oregon would be a main focus. And we have multiple Oregon clubs, monthly, quarterly, mm -hmm. hard to find, uh, things that aren't just the same old Pinot Club or whatever. So clubs, Oregon wine, that's the big deal. That's the whole side of the store we're sitting in right now, along with Washington, California. And then uh, my love, of course, I have to have Europe. And we have Southern Hemisphere, we have everything. We have the largest selection of vermouth, sherry, um, uh, aperitivos. That's, those are all my personal favorite things. So we have a bazillion selections of those things as well. And uh, shipping everywhere, we ship almost, almost anywhere. So that we knew that this could be the, the wine center for all of that. Education was always at the forefront. Oregon was always at the forefront. And then I got to bring in crazy Italian digestivos and, and you know, European wine because we have space to do it. So that's the deal. Please tell me about you, how you found the place and sort of your kind of initial uh, initial entree here. Yeah, I mean, uh, as you said, I was uh, the bar manager. I had been working at the Woodsman, um, and it I was running the wine list. And the wine list is it was great, but it wasn't the I don't if you guys know the Woodsman. The cocktail program there was just absolutely outstanding, um, and it was really more of a bourbon kind of focused place. Um, so I started kind of feeling like I need to get back into wine, like to really have wine be my, to be all about wine, not the accessory, but, um, and I got hooked up with, so my husband and I also have um, a wine and food catering company and we were doing some pop-ups at the time. Um, and so we have this space here. And so a mutual friend connected me um, with uh, the guys here. And so we did a dinner. Um, and right after that, like I had kind of been in the space and I remember being like that, that's it. Like, that's what found it. Like, <laughs> I, I forgot about the parallel event. Yeah. I totally forgot yeah. about that. So part. that's how we, that's how like, and after being in the space huh. and engaging, oh, and then a week later we did, um, we did the Brovia, I think it was Brovia or, um, Joey cooked. The there Brovia was Piedmont dinner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was a, so then Joey cooked 
did pairings for um, a, forgot all that. Uh, yeah, wow, it's been a long one. four and a half years. <laughs> I think it was Ruby, but I can't remember. But five, a, a five Piedmont, years. a full Piedmont dinner, um, and so we were just like really engaged and got to know Neil. And um, so then I was like, "Y'all hiring?" <laughs> um, and so it was actually uh, I only worked here one day a week for like two weeks, um, maybe two or three weeks, and um, and then uh, the other bar manager moved on, and they were like. Can you take over? Please. Can you yeah. <laughs> so then, uh, then I started running the bar for um, I think it was probably about a year and a half or so, something like that, until um, we uh, until I became a partner, and, um, which was a fun transition for me. I think it's it was kind of great. I love uh, running programs, but there's so much more that I do now, um, which is really cool. And um, I mean, it's not a good thing, but since the pandemic, um, I've done more retail, which is a great kind of transition even though um bittersweet i wish it <laughs> i wish it didn't it's, happen but, it's been fun yeah, but it I has mean, been sad fun. reason for it, it but yeah but fun. it has been fun and it's great i worked a little bit of retail in new york um at aster wines which is uh what i always use with neil when we're talking about like our vision for this place and how we can just be uh a really great wine shop i was always so inspired by aster how it's this huge wine shop um it's right in lafayette like right in aster uh um, right on fourth Lafayette. Anyways, and uh, but they they have geeky wines and they have older wine. They have I mean it's like a marquee wine shop, but without being too um, it's discerning, you know. And and I think that's something that we're always trying to figure out. How are we geeky? Like we don't put something on our shelf that we don't believe in. Um, but then we also we want to appeal to everybody. We mm -hmm. want the selection to be vast. We want someone to come in and say, I heard about this, you know, small appellation. Do you have it? And we like want to have it. Um, mm -hmm. and so it's, we're still kind of growing or not kind of, we're very much growing and molding and figuring out like what our long-term vision is. We want to be here for decades and it's important for us to kind of have that balance of a friendly wine shop that appeals to a lot of people, but also is all the wines we stand behind mm -hmm. a lot. Like we're mm -hmm. very passionate about all of them and I mean, not to, uh, not in a negative way, but we, we don't want to be your grocery store selection. Like that's not, that's not what we're looking for. Um, we want to be a fine wine shop, but that's very um, accessible. Mm -hmm. And just so happens that fine wines start at 12 bucks. So that works out fine. <laughs> Stacy's headed up. That's one, again, uh, one of the good things about the pandemic, Stacy headed up this wine club program that's, that's insane. And her, she kept telling me, and I was like, how are you gonna make that work? And her deal was literally, why would one of our customers or members or anyone pick up the wine at the supermarket when they're getting toilet paper and broccoli? Like, why would you, why are you gonna buy this, this wine, that wine there for 1679 or 1879 or whatever, when they could have $15 wine from us uh, delivered to their home so they don't have to pick it up. So that's what, I was like, well, that just sounds crazy. How would we even do that logistically? And now we have three, now four just started four successful monthly wine clubs where the bottles average $15 and has free delivery to your house. It's like, I don't know how, she's a, a wizard uh, and it isn't like close out junk either. Like we said, that's another thing I don't like about Instagram. There's a lot of, I'm not, I don't, I'm not gonna name names, but you're scrolling, everyone's got a club now. And I'm like, I know what those selections are. Those are a closeout that even Trader Joe's rejected. And not everyone, I'm just saying they're out there. Mm -hmm. Or I'm like, never heard of them before. And it's some garbage wine and they make it sound like a great deal. And ours are 
very curated. I mean, tasted through amazing values. That's not, that's starting to sound like a sales pitch and that's not what we're here for, but I'm impressed with, this is why I'm glad she's with me because I just didn't see how we could do that and we're doing it. And so that's the idea is our members now love it. They're like, wait, I don't understand. So you're gonna get me, 90 bucks gets me six bottles to my house for free. And yes, don't go. So she just keeps saying, don't go to the grocery store for wine. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Because I find wine I had down, mm -hmm. but I didn't know how yeah. we were going to do that. Well, I was there's it's, we're downtown. Not everyone's yeah. downtown all the time to buy. Well, anything. I also was. Uh, it, it really did. Uh, I mean, again, this is just my <coughs> thing. But I was amazed Sorry. at there was like one day I was like thinking of these clubs. I was putting like my proposal together, putting all my thoughts in one place, and then I was at Safeway and I was looking at the prices of the wine, assuming that they must be you know, nine ninety nine. And I was looking at prices of wine and I was like, these are the same as our prices. Like like you're like most people are like grabbing wine off the shelf that are is still seventeen, eighteen bucks. And so or more, you know, and there's some like like brand names that like marquee names that are flagship in, in um grocery stores that they're like thirty dollars, which I almost didn't know because I was like we're trying to get people to buy fine wine from us and it feels like a, you know always a price war and trying to get people to understand like these quality wines and i was just like okay we gotta we we you know we're gonna pick these wines that we've tasted we stand behind we know there's you know, smaller producers or organic or 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 just like you know made with thought and care like that we are just like so passionate about mm -hmm. and um sometimes local wine is a little prohibitive in the monthly clubs like we don't can find a ton of um values that we are super passionate about but we we can find them and we include them when we can i know twill did this red blend oh my gosh a few months ago and um it was at like the upper end of of what we could make work with the club but i was so jazzed to put it in there and it again i mean talk about people that you want to support mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. So I have a kind of a follow-up question to that. You talked about sort of how you select wine and, and wineries and people you buy from, and you kind of talked about it a little bit, but I'm curious about the sort of the philosophy behind it. What Do you find that more people are coming to you to try to get you try to get their wine in your shop, or that you're seeking people out whose wines you appreciate? And what is it you're looking for? What, 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 what are the kind of stories that resonate with you and resonate with your customers when it comes to selling wines out of here? Mm -hmm. I mean, we mostly have people come to us but then we also, we 50, do both. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I just think about like when I hear about a new want. winery, I like, well, we will absolutely like send a cold email and be like, we heard about you. Like what's, you know, what's your deal? And not currently, but you know, back in the day, like I love going out to the Valley. So if I heard about, if someone says, oh, I tried this one, like I will just like, like I'm happy to do it. Yeah, you're like, great. They have a tasting room. Like let's check them out. Let's meet some people. and worst thing that happens is you got to spend the day out in the valley. Right. <laughs> so, um, it, so we definitely in normal times, like try and get out there and, and meet people and engage. Um, but often, I mean, people bring stuff to us or reach out to us, whether it's um, through relationships or um, just like cold email. I mean, we get that all the time too. Um, and sometimes cold emails don't work and sometimes it, they forge like really good long-term mm -hmm. relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think the way, like describing, I don't know if we have a succinct way that we describe our wines, because we get people come in and say, oh, do you have organic and biodynamic, or do you have natural wines here? And I think something we 
don't have down to like a one sentence answer is like a lot of them are. A lot of our wines are family owned and operated, made with care and thought, but they're not certified anything. They're not, you know, like- And the ones that are certified are just in their geographical section, which I am, can I just jump right in and yeah, go, I'm passionate about, again, to make sure, because those people may come around next, and so I don't want to make them feel bad or something. So my thinking is, I always tell people, I, I can be quoted as saying one thing, and that's that if people are getting into wine, I'm like, do me a favor, do yourself a favor, do it with geography in mind. If you do it with geography and history, do it that way, and then you won't have to worry. And I always tell them it'll be easier for you, because if you had to learn all the great names, it's going to be so hard, you might get, you know, you might get tired of it. So um, do it as, pick a place you've traveled or where do you want to travel, research that, do it as geography and history. And then just by default, you end up finding, so say you're in Tuscany, excuse me. My example, say you're in Tuscany and you have everyone from the biggest corporate brand there owned by Gallo, Gallo has a property there, at least one. Um, and then you also have like absolute mom and pop, doesn't even, they wouldn't even have the money to buy new equipment or chemicals if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. So you have everything in between. So that's, I think that's a great way to learn about it is um, find out how wines are made and what the ones taste like that you like that are made that way. Uh, and then just start really shopping geographically, get to know the producer rather than does it say organic or not, because so many producers say we make sure we don't certify even though we are. I mean, think about Drew and, and Beaufrere, they've been biodynamic as long as Brickhouse or anyone else. They always were, mm -hmm. uh, even Drew and here now, their property totally is biodynamic. So like, but they certainly, they don't want to put that on their label because they're going to get stuck in some biodynamic section at a natural food store and no one's going to take them seriously or find the wine on the shelf because they're in the Oregon section. They didn't see it over there. Mm -hmm. And I, boy, I tell you, I wouldn't, if I had a brand, I would not want to get certified. So people come here for expertise and guidance so we can say, yes, we have them, I'll show you some but I always want to make sure they know um, they're just mixed into the ge geographical place they belong. And typically the only wines we buy are sustainably, thoughtfully produced, often organically. And I like to point out often by default, because like I say, they just, these farmers haven't changed the way they were farming. Mm -hmm. So they just, they're like, they didn't get, I always say they didn't get the memo on this new thing to use in the winery, these tricks. And so um, I'll often say the whole, you can go to the European side with a blindfold on and grab something and it's probably not gonna have anything in it that you're afraid of mm -hmm. uh, getting in, putting in your mm -hmm. body. Mm -hmm. And then on our Oregon section, even as we're speaking now, I'm looking over at the, the Cameron and the Troon, which is 100% biodynamic now. That brand's really taken off. Mm -hmm. And all of Jeff Veer's wines, we've got Cowhorn. And just looking across the way, that's just how they're made. Mm -hmm. So it kinda, I see a light come on and people are like, Okay, okay, so, and I'm like, you don't have to just pick from four of our wines or a small section. Mm. Um, I can't think, there's, I could count on these fingers, the producers we carry because we kind of have to. We're right in the middle of Hotel Central and there's a, I won't say the names, but there's certain brands that people just expect to grab a chilled bottle of out of the fridge and go back to the room with. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, that's not even the brand. I was, that's not who I was thinking of, actually. I'm thinking of something else. But, um, I'm just like, I'm just thinking but they of the can, audience just like being like. <clears throat> but it's easy here. And that's so I try to like make them feel comfortable to shop the whole store. Mm -hmm. And then if they want to know specifics, we can help mm -hmm. answer that. Oh, well, I'm also a business. Yeah. But you have to balance that. I mean, you can't like sacrifice your values just because you need to make money that would be and to and to the consumers <laughs> I would, 
That's true. And to the consumers, <laughs> I would encourage to, um, if you're new in the hobby and you're real excited about this new topic of natural wine or whatever it is, to uh, do a lot of your own research and then go in uh, and perhaps be understanding that the new excited passion that there may not be staff always available to spend an hour, two hours, just like having camaraderie about that exciting new topic. So, but we always wanna give attention and time as much as we can so to help someone find the perfect bottle of wine that they're looking for, for their occasion or tasting group or consuming, whatever it is. I feel like we could talk about this for a long time. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this is like, yeah. yeah. But we're all, is we're all excited. I think I did that though. You know, hang out. When I did that at Radio Shack when I was a kid growing up, they just got to know me by name. I would just hang out there all day. I bet they were so everything, just, just checking it all out, learning about capacitors. <laughs> That's fun. It is fun. Mm -hmm. Have you found that your, I mean, obviously Park Avenue itself fairly new still, but in your kind of time selling wine, have you found that customers' expectations of those kinds of things have changed? Are more people asking organic, biodynamic? Um, natural, um, sustainable, whatever, whatever word you want to use. Are you finding that more people are coming in looking for that specifically? I don't know that more. I think people just popular. more want a story. Like yeah, they want to know. The story yeah. and experience. We talk yeah. about that all the time. Which is something, I know I personally connect more. I, I, I like organic and biodynamic wines. I, I mean, I, but I think it's more about like who's making them. Is this, mm -hmm. you know, that there's a person who has connection to the land that the wine, the grapes are coming from. I think people are much more drawn to that than the specific words Like we don't get. We don't get a ton of people who say, I do, it happens, it definitely does. But mm -hmm. um, I think they're more interested in, in the story behind the wine. And I, that is, I agree. Yeah. I think it's the best way to sell, certainly with Oregon wine, where we have great stories with so many of these producers, um, but all the wines, um, mm -hmm. we say, you know, we either we visited them or we just know like this is you know fifth generation mm -hmm. or something like it is like knowing that who's making the wine has a connection to their product um is something that's important to us and then something that i think is really important to consumers like mm -hmm. they want to i think just like the way people are attracted to um farmers markets and farmers i think people are starting to get that mm -hmm. this that wine is a agricultural product that is is made by someone's mm -hmm. hand and like connecting with that a lot i love what you just said that's the first that i've heard that you say that and i agree completely with that and for all of us and that's um boy that's it you nailed it the farmer's market is a good example and farmer's markets it always strikes me as odd but they cost more um well i know why but they cost more than a supermarket but people are willing to pay for that uh, even an organic food at a supermarket is the most expensive outlet, but there's a reason why we do it. And we get that fresh baked bread from that vendor and we get the asparagus or the whatever's in season. And that's how people are buying these wines for mm -hmm. sure is um, let's hear your story, let's hear about it. And that's why I was gonna say, that's why I think Oregon wine, by necessity, it often is more expensive than European wine because they don't, they haven't owned the land forever. Their own family doesn't pick the grapes. I don't think, I, I know, we're friends with almost every one of these winemakers and none of them, I can't think of any of them that are rich and rolling around in a brand new crazy car. It's, it's a total labor of love. They're probably barely scraping by most of the time. And I get it, the overhead is crazy for a newer winery, but that's, talk about passion. Those people have passion. And that's where I think people are willing to pay 
this, you know, I see 44 and 59 and 36, but that's not out of line for that experience and the quality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that with this space, you have the op opportunity to do a lot of different things. So I want to have a couple of specific questions about some of the things you offer here and sort of how they came about and the perceptions of them. So I'll start with the legacy pours. Tell me about the idea behind that and, and the, how that's gone so far. Yeah. Oh, God, I missed that. Um, I'm like, oh, oh. <laughs> um, that was, so I kind of came in, that had just started when I took over the bar, I think. And But the, the great thing about that is so many times people just buy a bottle, you know, and you buy a bottle, you open it at home. And to really... So to just give a few more details, um, so we had these pours that were a lower markup, so we would take older wines or just higher end wines, hopefully with at least a little bit of age on it. And then the markup, it wasn't quite, it was basic, not quite, but a little bit like if you just took the bottle price and kind of divided it in five. A little bit more because you got to like make a little bit, there's some extra costs of labor and argon and all these things. Um, but. Um, so they were a pretty good deal, for, and it was a two ounce pours or five ounce pours. Um, and it was really cool to see people come in and be able to experience wine that, I mean, I, I can't, I, these are wines I couldn't drink all the time, you know? We had just, uh, there were just some great wines that we would put on there. I mean, one time we put, um, I think it was Lafitte. Um, one time we put, we had all the, we older Iries, like 20 year old Irie wines. And we um, often run the Tondonia wines. The to yeah. Mm -hmm. Rose and yeah, old even, reds. And that's true. It didn't and even it's have so to current. be really old, but we had the, the Lopez de Heredia Rose. That's a good example. It's hard to find. You can't, you know, and we only got, we didn't get a lot for the show. Yeah, we got like three bottles, yeah. so we might as well pour it. <clears throat> so being able to let people, you know, you up to, tw if everyone gets two ounces, 12 people got to taste something that they never would have tasted. So for us, it, it's funny because it almost, um, I sometimes would worry that it made us look like fancy, but it, to me actually felt like really kind of like bringing fine wine, like to the people mm -hmm. and making it more accessible, um, which I think is just so cool. I mean, I, I there are just some like, even like, and it, again, it wasn't always old. It, it would be great to do it old, but you know, we put like Radicon on there and like people weren't like, you know, a 500 mil of Radicon is like 45 bucks. And it's a weird wine. And it's so like to, to be able to get someone to taste two ounces of it and be like, oh, cool. And then it, they don't have to make the commitment of, you know, the full bottle is, it was so cool. And especially, I mean, for me, I, you know, you have to taste every bottle. You got to <laughs> proof it. It's the and right thing. It's just to do. it's the right thing. Um, but you do, and then my staff they have to taste it because someone's going to ask, "Hey, what's the difference between?" Sometimes we would get two different vintages of the same thing, mm -hmm. and someone would say, "What's the difference?" And you have to be able to speak to it. And so it was really, um, it was really great. And I can't wait to start that again. Can I? I was okay. Yeah. I'm glad you said. I was going to point out we're talking past tense a lot because of COVID right now. It's Just coming back. Just because of COVID. Um, and I love that. What it brings. Um, but what I love about the legacy pours is like Stacy was saying, we were, we didn't want to just look too fancy, but that's not at all what happened. We have all the like master sommeliers that come to town when they're in town, all the sommelier tests that happen and the, the people that come to town for that. We are the destination and people line up at the bar and they absolutely love it and it's so much fun. And then next thing you know, they are buying bottles because we were also doing like just retail plus 10, cor 10 bucks corkage and so just champagnes, 
that would be 300 at a restaurant, but is like 110 here or whatever, and then just open and drink. So it became, no one thought it was snobby. Everyone's like, this is awesome. We can drink great wine and afford to do it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, winemakers and all, um, you know, Joel Peterson was at one time and like, just every, all the like winemakers from the valley, they, people love coming here to get, and then uh, a lot of high rollers will come in and drink two or five ounces of white burgundy that is on some old Joe Bard or something mm -hmm. that seems expensive to me, but they're like, oh my gosh, I love it. A glass of Joe Bard or so, you know, so it's fun. Mm -hmm. it, the legacy pours are really special. Yeah. And you mentioned obviously uh, food as well here. Tell me about the sort of the, the food uh, again during normal non-COVID times, the sort of food aspect of, of the place here and, and also the education part of it here. Tell me about kind of how you've kind of wrapped those things into the Park Avenue experience. You want to talk food? I'll talk education. Sure. Okay. Um, so we have, I mean, we have this amazing space, um, and what we were doing is we were working with a really amazing chef, Carl Hall, um, who was renting the kitchen. He has his own uh, business called Spetzel and Spec, uh, which is awesome. And then uh, we were working with him to um, have the wine bar food that was really fun. It was great to kind of, because especially we're not a full service restaurant, so to have this really wonderful food experience mm -hmm. to go along with wine. It was, I mean, that's kind of, that's for us, like that's it, you know, mm -hmm. food and wine together are just, it's it just like, you know. That's the point. That's the point, yeah. I don't even, <laughs> but uh, so it's always been really important to us and we've done a lot of wine dinners and um, we did this amazing wine dinner with a, um, the Corizondo Soul one, where we integrated education with, we made it like a seminar slash dinner, which is one of the few times we did that and it actually worked really well. Um, and so we did, uh, um, can you remember the full menu? It was, well, it was like, Argentine inspired beef. It, yes. Um, uh, and so then it was the, um, B, it was the, um, and then it had like a pesto, but then there wasn't that like an empanada, like an empanada yep, to there start. Was, yep. And it was so fun. Um, and that to us is like to introduce customers to really good wine and then be like, this is it in context mm -hmm, is mm -hmm, just, mm -hmm. it's that is education and hospitality rolled into one. Um, we're really looking forward to, I mean, COVID has derailed a lot of plans and things. Um, so Carl's moving on and he's gonna, um, kind of do some really great things. So we do get to start from scratch with the wine bar, um, which I'm really excited about. And so we don't have solid plans right now, but we have a lot of ideas in our heads. We do. That we're not gonna put out loud because yeah. they're just our like exciting little ideas right now, but um, we are... Uh, but we will be able to call from places we've been mm -hmm. and experiences in tasting bars. I think of winery tasting mm -hmm. rooms. I think of restaurants with wine programs and mm -hmm. tasting. It's, uh, it's exciting. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. um, again, you got to deal with what was dealt. So, you mm -hmm. know, everything is interrupted. But um, with that, we're trying to be really positive. And uh, I think finding a way to express ourselves through what's paired with the wine, um, we're, we're pretty excited about it. Mm -hmm. And to... Um, kind of find a way to execute that is um, gonna be a challenge, but I think we'll, I think we'll figure it out. And um, we just, I can't wait to, um, again, continue creating context for our customers mm -hmm. and having mm -hmm. them um, understand wine. Cause I, I mean, I love sipping wine alone, but you know, when you put it with something, it elevates the food and the wine together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And speaking of elevating food and wine together, events has always been a big thing. We do have the space. It's funny, you would think we have like a massive dining hall, but we don't. We have a table that seats 12 comfortably, 14, and then if we like put a couple side tables, we can get up to 17 or 18 in what we call the brass room downstairs, an homage to the old brass room up Mart. There was a, a uh, very striking, gigantic, gilded mirror painted brass room Montmartre that stood behind the bar, which is now our retail counter that whole time. So we dedicated that to fit perfectly in that room. We have a, a sort of a little chandelier and everything down there. So that's the brass room. And that's where we have uh, very well attended classes, uh, wine classes. Uh, so far we've only done pretty much one-on-one -on -one level, but cover the whole world, people love that. Mm -hmm. And then we've done a lot of winemaker dinners. A couple of our favorites, uh, I gotta say the Irie, well we've done two events, two or three events now with Jason Lett, and, and uh, that the Irie dinner is memorable. Uh, so many though, even in the, a wonderful Silver Oak dinner, and that's, you don't think of like, we're up in Oregon, but the Silver Oak dinner, so well attended, champagne dinners. Um, actually the most fun, I think one summer we did three, uh, champagne and fried chicken dinners, which oversold. We had to like create, we ended up doing it up here on this floor and like putting tables everywhere. Uh, and it was so much fun because we did like uh, some grower champagnes and we did like big name Krug and uh, we had the famous fried chicken chefs in town with um, Dougie, mm -hmm. Doug Adams and uh, Maya Loveless and Cody Auger from uh, Nimblefish to Karagi. And they did like their own takes on them with gold foil and flake. And then we had champagne and fried chicken, all you can eat. And it was like, so I'm excited again. Yeah, I'm, about, <laughs> I, I'm excited thinking about reopening and just doing stuff like that. Um, but people really ask for classes the most. Mm -hmm. That's the thing people are into. So I'm looking forward to more education. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and like I say, we do we do have the space to do it. It's it, not like you would think we would in eight and a half thousand square feet because everything's broken into rooms and sections. Mm -hmm. But um, it ends up being intimate by default, and people like that as well. Mm -hmm. And we do have the we have a membership program, a couple of them. So, forty of our members, forty two technically, um, have a little locker, a little cubby hole downstairs in a member lounge, and then they get to also. Uh, rent that room for their own events and things and a lot of them just use it for wine tastings mm -hmm. So it's just wine everything around here when it's wide open and that's organized uh, and otherwise <laughs> so, so looking forward to all of that again mm -hmm. I don't even know what it'll all look like yet because we're so busy Stacy and I are um, We do have a little bit of help right now, but since COVID we've been working mostly by ourselves and uh, so we're very busy and had you know once we hear things that uh, is safe to do so, we're gonna start planning all of that. Mm -hmm. But classes is what I keep, even yesterday, you know, talking to someone about wine, about the wine I sent up, this going up courier to her today, delivering to her today. And she was like, I, I just love the way you're speaking about the wine, do you have classes? And I'm like, hmm, okay, <laughs> soon, hang tight. On that note, when you are doing classes, what are the, what are the things you're trying to get across to your audience? What are the things you think are most important for like a 101 level wine class from a tasting perspective? What, what, what are the kind of key points you hit? I'll, for me, it's always geography and history, again, and uh, whoever the guest is or whatever we're studying. Um, what, what well, yeah, I think? mean, geography, history, for me, like taste, even on the most basic level, tasting wine where you know, like, the like, the learning the vocabulary, especially if you go into a wine shop or a wine bar, dry versus sweet, what high and low tannin is, high and low acid, um, 
even to be able to have like build on your personal wine vocabulary since it's so hard even for wine professionals to convey what we're trying to say when we taste wine um, so that's really important for me for wine 101 it's so confusing and some people um, if no one's ever told you what a tannin is people come in and they just don't you know they'll say smooth or you know or what's a I don't know smooth or crisp and they they don't know they're trying to say maybe low tannin or high acid and mm -hmm. like um, the, so that's an important thing for someone mm -hmm. getting to know wine to to translate the words they use into how they can communicate, especially at a wine shop, go to a wine bar. Um, and so they can f keep learning about wine too, so mm -hmm. that they're not intimidated. Mm -hmm. That's, that's always important. That's my favorite part in general about wine is having someone use words that they, they're, it, the fun is trying to figure out what they actually mean regardless of what they're saying without them knowing that, you're, that you know they're wrong. <laughs> uh, because, but then the result of that is that they're like, you, I, I came in here afraid to speak, and now I feel confident mm -hmm. to come here. That happens all the time. Mm -hmm. So they'll say, I like a big, I like a wine you can stand a knife up in, and I just, a big tannic wine like this brand, or whatever, like certain blah blah brand. And I'll be like, okay, there's no tannin in that wine. So I think I know what they mean. Mm -hmm. And then I'll figure it out, and it seemed to be good at it, because two and a half decades later, people are like, you know, we have the same palette. You know exactly. I'm like, we do not, but <laughs> but I know what you like, and I figured it out. And then you help them confidently, feel confident. And I'd be like, well, you, you know, here's. By the way, keep remember these words. So if you go to another wine shop, I'll give you a couple words to use, and I think you'll be successful. And they're always very happy with that. Mm -hmm. Get return customers that way for sure, mm -hmm. and just make people happy, which is kind of the idea. Well, it's obviously it's obviously come up during this interview already, but obviously uh, we talked talk about COVID, um, and so you you mentioned a couple of things about the way you've responded to it here. I'm curious about sort of your recollection of of how it affected your business to start, how you how you decided what you needed to do to pivot, and what you are you've talked about what you're looking forward to fried chicken and champagne, mm -hmm. uh, but, but what what you're looking forward to as you come out, and and maybe some adjustments you've made during COVID that you're anticipating keeping around. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Yeah. Well, I mean, the big thing that we were psyched to do is redid it. We redid our website within the first month, and that was we was had we had to. Um, and it took a lot of our labor time. That at in that moment we weren't focusing on sales as much, but it obviously was more of a long-term uh, vision on that. Um, and so we switched our POS system, and so visually the shop is. Uh, the website is a lot better and something that is tech, quite technical but I know most business owners really appreciate is inventory management is just like the thing it's like the it's like get me going on inventory management and I'll, you know I'll talk about it for a long time but um, it's very you know we have these so many different especially when we had the bar you know you have people across the country who are, could be buying something on your website while you're opening it for someone on a shelf and mm -hmm. then or off the shelf in the bar and so you really need to connect all these things and, and, and that's way harder. Uh, it's easier said than done. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so we redid this website and it just, the inventory management aspect of it is so tight now. And um, it really let us, it streamlined delivery, shipping and pickup. And that was the, that was the big one, like curbside. Mm -hmm. We always had a website, but it just, it was just a little different. Now people who are just like, they can go online, they can buy something and say pick up curbside and then they're like, you know, blue Honda Accord, and then they can just like drive up, not instantaneously, 
but you know, like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it's, and so that was major and something that, um, I mean, we kind of had those structures already in place, right. but they, they streamlined mm -hmm. this new system streamlined it. I was going to say, that's, what's going to stay is again, we are downtown. We're parking. Once things are fully reopened, parking can be tough. We know that, um, good time to mention that I, is so Portland and I'm the same way. This is so Portland to be like, what, where is that? When it's like a block away. I know where I'm from cities of sprawl, Jacksonville, Houston, Charlotte. And so I, I, I'm like, it's literally a 60 second walk away, but there is a smart park that we validate for literally 60, 45 seconds by foot from here. So, um, so there's that, but we will keep with all of the, the website is like Stacey's saying, curbside, here's home driving, whatever. They can even like be just stop in the street usually and we can load in their car. Mm -hmm. So um, that and the delivery and shipping we've always done, everyone knows it now and we're just gonna keep rolling with that big mm -hmm. time too. But we love to have people come in, of course. Mm -hmm. Smart Park's good for like when the bars reopen. Uh, it's wonderful to have Smart Park right there and they've redone it, it's super nice now and all that. Mm -hmm. Actually everything that's being built now down here is very nice. They're coming along quickly on the new Ritz-Carlton property right Caddy corner from us with a rental, living, retail, everything's still happening. Thank God I was concerned about that, but mm -hmm. it is so. Mm -hmm. We even got some great new customers out of some of the mm -hmm. construction workers. Yeah, construction workers who like wine. It's been awesome. It's great. Um, oh, and I'd say something else that the COVID has forced us to think about is um, the, just that whole conversation of convenience for people to get their wine, and that's where the clubs come in. But we've been talking with a partner out in a large partner out in Beaverton to have a potential annex on, on like on Saturdays and like a four hour mini shop or a pickup window or something like that for all of their employees, thousands of employees and they're, they're in it. So uh, we're doing a lot of talk like that, just mm -hmm. how to get wine to people. Because mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. people, they're out there and they have money for wine, they like wine and mm -hmm. we're gonna be that shop for them. Yeah, but I mean, we, I we are. We always talked about that's where we started the clubs. Like, it is convenient to get wine at the grocery store, of course, like of course. And we want, so we want people to be able to get good wine in the most convenient way for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's our goal is, mm -hmm. and you know, I know in my personal life, I really, for supporting small business is really important. And yeah. I, you know, grocery stores have done quite well in COVID and um, small businesses, not just ours with wine, but all small businesses really need love. And, you know, when you support a small business, you really, you make a massive impact in your community mm -hmm. way more than if you support a corporation. So I mm -hmm. encourage everyone to support small businesses. <laughs> like, like I always say, there's no small local vendor who crafts toilet paper and sells it, or I'd buy it from that. Right? <laughs> but, so go to Fred Meyer or wherever for that. We all do. And then, uh, I talked about toilet paper on an interview that'll be forever safe right, twice. twice. Uh, paper towels, but that, that's the place to go get those. Um, yeah, and it's just a shame to have to get wine there. So that's, that's what came out of this for us was expansion that we always wanted to do, but didn't think we'd have the time to do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And then for me, the wine clubs have been a really good outlet because I have it, I, without the bar, I, you know, it's been my creative outlet. So it's been pretty fun. Mm -hmm. So on that note, what is the, what is the what are you looking for in the future for the next five ten years for Park Avenue? Hiring employees so we get a break. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we can just get 
one little thing. If it, if it weren't for lattes and Girl Scout cookies, we would be arch enemies right now. <laughs> Those Samoas did not last. I know. Those were, that was not good. Um, yeah, or, you know, my daughter, it'd be nice to not have her to hear her every day say, are you going to work today, mama? Yeah, so for real restaffing. Re okay, but long term, no. long term, <laughs> long term, um, I think more of the same and- um, I, think, I think executing the things that we've been dreaming about are what we're really excited about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're not gonna be stagnant. We're, we're in a large, we can't afford to be stagnant in yeah. this space. We're gonna grow. So I think we, with the relaunch of the bar and you know, integrating, uh, pairings and how we can do classes and dinners and just um yeah i'd like to keep doing what we were doing but just better and more how mm -hmm. about that <laughs> mm -hmm. we've learned a lot it's we sometimes i say that we're guilty i feel guilty how much good came out of being forced to stop and slow down uh, COVID was so terrible it's uh, so terrible there's no way to put words to it um and we're so lucky to be able to survive by just shedding all the fat and doing what we have to do um, and working very hard, but it it was almost necessary for something to happen to get us to learn what we need to do. And our interactions with our clients has never been stronger. Mm -hmm. So now we know what they want, we know what to do, and it's just more of the same. Mm -hmm. Plus the bar, which is gonna be so cool. It's gonna be weird to have like bar noise and music again mm -hmm. when I'm like trying to take a call to, you know, so order to wine. I mean, for, for like a good three or four <clears throat> months, we didn't even have, we had the door locked. And it was just the two of us stuck in here together. <laughs> Lots of lattes. <laughs> um, and so if people wanted to pick up, so we did deliveries, if people wanted to pick up, like they would have to knock or we would bring it curbside. So, um, and then I think in August, we started letting people into shop um, in small uh, groups, mm -hmm. um, like only a couple of people. Um, so that's, that's a, a, yeah, it's a funny experience. Um, and so it'll be nice to have yeah, you're at bar noise and just like people. I'm gonna be so irritated. It's gonna be epic. He's gonna be like, why is someone talking to me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. It will be interesting. But yeah, it'll be nice. It'll be nice to have that um, vivaciousness back. Mm -hmm. in the, this in the space, space needs it, and it always has had it. When this was a restaurant and a jazz bar, I mean, the, about 36 inches behind where you're sitting, Rich, was where. Uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders played. So that's like a thing. This place like has it in its soul, in its bones, and uh, we're you know we're ready for it to be vivacious again. Yeah. Um, so, um, especially for you, Neil, this is what, what are the biggest changes you've seen in the Oregon wine industry since you've been here and since you've been a part of since you've been sort of familiar with Oregon wine? What what are the changes into the wines and to the people that you've seen from the producer side, and what do you see happening? next for both of you what do you see happening next in the Oregon wine industry i see well the change i saw since i got to oregon first um and i know you'll agree but i, I well i'll get right to it is that uh the main thing i've seen change is that there's a, of course a lot more brands now versus a lot more wineries so a lot of um a lot of our friends a lot of sommeliers a lot of people have who often have full-time jobs have branched off to start their own brand where they're sourcing fruit and so it, it does make it tougher to keep up with the new hundreds and hundreds of new labels. Um, and they're not always 
you know, great. Sometimes they're experimental and fun, and sometimes they're better than others. Um, but that's the main change, because when I came here, it was there were 147 or something like that wineries, and those were the brands. That was it. Mm -hmm. So you could kind of get your head around mm -hmm. it, and everyone could speak to it and talk about it. Go visit the wineries. And now um, it's very different. So if someone wants to go out to, um, what's that awesome wine that Saul makes? What's his brand? Championship so, bottle. Yeah, championship bottle. I always say Silicon is the one that I love so much. I keep wanting to say that. But championship bottle. There's no winery to visit, but we do want to uh, promote those wines. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's it's just different like that. We have to talk about brands now mm -hmm. or labels or whatever. And, and I used, you can't say wineries anymore. And some of them have rented wineries or micro wineries. So that's like literally the number one difference. Um, the other thing is I would say one difference that I'm really liking, and this is where our Discover Oregon club comes in, is Discover Oregon is a quarterly club. It's all about not Pinot, not Chardonnay, not Gamay. It's not the, we, we're known for Burgundy grapes. Everyone's got that down by now. We're world renowned for it, for a good reason. But what about the, the uh, Gar Noir Swiss grape that Jeff Vera makes? And what about the Dolcettos and like crazy wines and uh, Silicon Sapphires, a Friuli white blend? Like those, I'm excited. I got reinvigorated about Oregon wine all over where I'm taking home Oregon wine now instead of like knowing about it but taking home a French wine, I'm taking home Oregon wine again because it's crazy exciting right now. Mm -hmm. And that to me, Oh, everyone's outside the box. What Brienne Day did this year with her 2020 vintage with all the, everyone had all this problem with smoke taint and so much trouble. So she made that one called Lemonade, mm -hmm. you know, for obvious reasons, it's white Pinot Noir. What a fun twist and that one's delicious. So I think that's what's fun is what the newest generation of winemakers are doing that are different now that there's an established set of what Willamette Valley's known for. Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Gamay. Gamay's hot. But the others, mm -hmm. that's, that's to me the big change. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's not always a winery, which is frustrating for tourists. But. What about for the future of Oregon wine? What do you guys see coming next? I think, I don't know. I mean, I think it's so interesting how many grapes are getting explored that are outside, as you were mentioning. As Mondews. Mm -hmm. I mean, but to see that it's great, I mean, it's, it's awesome. So it's not like, it's kind of challenging that like, well, this is our climate and this is what we grow well, mm -hmm. even though we do grow very well. Um, it's pretty fun. It kind of feels like we're like figuring ourselves out a little bit, even though we, I mean, without, you know, disparaging like our take. Pinot heritage. Um, yeah. It's still, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome to mm -hmm. see how creative people are getting mm -hmm. um, without being too experimental. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, and just, as, as vineyards get older and... That, uh, I was just thinking that because yeah. you can't expand much more. So mm -hmm. the age of vines is making mm -hmm. a difference now. Um, I mean, even some of Cameron's wines resolve before 20 years now mm -hmm. because of age of vines. Mm -hmm. He told me that this time. I was, like, I was like, why does it not taste horrible upon release and better in 20 years anymore? He goes, because of the age of the vines. It's so like they they can, uh, I forget exactly what he said, but uh, the Arley's Leap vines in yeah. particular, they're just so good. And I, I think that's going to be something that we, we can speak to that now where France always was. Uh, old vine this, old vine that, and now we have, you know, 35 and 40 year old vines in the Willamette Valley. And of course, down south, there are vines planted in the 1880s mm -hmm. so that are still in production. So, well, the vineyards anyway. Mm -hmm. And like the gorge, there's so many cool things happening in the gorge. Yeah, um, actually that's hot now. Yeah, yeah. and so really exploring other areas 
um, beyond the Willand Valley and beyond Southern Oregon. It's just, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. I think there's a lot of excitement. And there's a lot of talent. Um, and I think people are, yeah, it's, there's a lot of good stuff. Mm -hmm. So both of you described your kind of interesting routes into the industry. I'm, I'm curious if someone were to come to you and probably, someone probably has come to you and asked for like words of wisdom on joining the Oregon wine industry. What would you tell someone who was just getting started? Um, I mean. Market I, saturation? Yeah. Well, just Sorry. to get to, you know, we've talked so much about how it's community and I think like get to know the people um, yeah. because it speaks so much to the industry and I guess that's any industry you just need to create relationships um, but it feels like that you know creating relationships then lends itself to learning what new vineyards are happening or what you know it, it's it all kind of ties in together um, but that's so important and to understand the history too um, and how it ties in with the present I mean um, it's cool to see someone like Irie and with Jason like it's one of the, you, you get to say like the first of the you know, but then what he's doing now is still amazing and, mm -hmm. and absolutely relevant. And he's mm -hmm. pushing, he's still pushing himself. Too. He's both. Cause we're, yeah. we're currently running in the most recent club. We had his Chasse La mm -hmm. another Swiss grape. How funny. Um, with the funniest back label. If anyone gets a hold of that, read the back label. Um, <laughs> Anyway, that's a great example. He actually, what a great, the, the first in the, I would say if it ain't broke, don't fix it. First in the best, I, the IRE Vineyards, I'm a big fan. So, <clears throat> but what he's doing now with his father's legacy is the old wines taste exactly the same as they did. And then his new wines are new and exciting. They are those new crazy labels and those grapes we didn't know were being grown here. Um, that, I'm excited thinking about it. That's, yeah. that's the excitement. But it makes me think about, you know, all the new producers, they still have, even all the winemakers, you know, I think about the young winemakers who they're all making their wine at, they have these, you know, the generation before them, they're making the wine at their spaces or their get, that's where they get their grape contacts mm -hmm. from. And so everybody, you know, you have to kind of understand everything that's going on. You mm -hmm. can't just be like, well, I just want to taste the, you know, the cool, you can't just focus on what, what's happening now, it's, it's all, mm -hmm. I mean, it like any, I just any wine region though, you have to respect the history and you have to know the <clears> classics, <throat> like they're benchmarks for a reason because year by year they endure. And so you have to understand that. I think that's really important. Um, you know, it's not, you can't just dismiss the older, <laughs> the older wines. Oh, that would be such a shame in Oregon. Yes. Yeah. 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 Our history is so unique and rich mm -hmm. here. So I think that's an important part of understanding <clears throat> the Oregon wine industry and getting into it and, um, <laughs> Oh, were you asking about, uh, okay, so what we were talking about? So we were talking about the, in <laughs> the, the, the what would you advise somebody? We talked about someone, we talked about it as if going to make wine. Did you also want to talk uh, about I meant learning about, I meant like if you're going to work on the floor in retail, the same thing oh. too. I, yeah, an approach, um, or if you, yeah, I, I didn't mean just winemaking. Mm -hmm. I meant like if you're learning about it or if you mm -hmm. wanted to work at, um, you know, restaurant or a retail shop, like you mm. have to know, know it all and mm -hmm. connect with everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Connections are the Oregon way, I guess any, probably any small industry, mm -hmm. but definitely like we know the people who, people who sell corks and people who sell barrels. So, uh, you know, you just ask people and people know people and mm -hmm. put people in touch with each other. Mm -hmm. And I mean, connections is how I have ever gotten a job. And so, um, that's the way to do it, yeah. 
All right. Well, that's actually all the questions that I do have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here that we should have covered? Anything else you want us to battle about? <laughs> we'll find something. I'm, I'm just trying to think if there's something we're going to be like. That was. I can't, if I start now, this week, <laughs> and this week is brutal too. We have, there's a lot this week. Um, Morning. So I can't. I did think about it. I was like, I couldn't possibly make it through the day. <laughs> um, do a toast later for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I don't. Um, I think, I, I you mean, know, the other thing I think that we're excited about that we haven't mentioned um, that we have talked about before is um, we're starting to do Park Avenue cuvées with winemakers. Mm -hmm. Oh, and right. And that's something that is that. like we had talked about it for a long time. And uh, basically this summer we kind of sat down and I was like, we got to what are three things we want to accomplish in the next month? You know, like right now. And that was one of them. And we're mm -hmm. like, let's do it. And our very first one was with Hundred Sons, and I, I it's I, epic. I, 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 I like don't. I mean, it is so good, and it was such a wonderful working experience with them, and their wines are, uh, and we, our customers have just from all over the country have been like, um, this is awesome. Like, can I get more? And we're like, no, no, it's gone. You know. Um, I want to quote Grant real quick. My, yeah. my quotable quote from that day when we blended, did all of our blending, we kept tried this and that barrel, a third of this, two thirds of that, and we ended up on this really perfect, uh, uh, this very perfect blend that I knew, I was like, this is the one, I had already written in my notebook, this will be the one, mm -hmm. I, I think. And um, we, and he smelled it and raised his, with his glasses, he raised his hands in the air and said, this is Oregon. And I was like, I, that's the one. And I agree. And he, it was his own wine, but we had blended it away. He hadn't blended yet. And he was just like, he was blown away. Mm -hmm. We were all blown away. And that's the wine we picked. And so then uh, they were so generous. They let us one third of that is something they only had a single barrel of that I joke, can we just get that barrel? And he's like, absolutely not. <laughs> but he did let us use yeah. it. It's so good. It is and so good. And it was great. We had known them, but we didn't have a strong relationship with them. And now I'm like, yeah, those they are great people, mm -hmm. and we really I'm very much looking forward to working with them in the future. And um, we did a gamay with Martin Woods, and we're doing a Chardonnay with Martin Woods. And I think um, for us, it just creates. It, it, I mean, like going in barrel tasting with winemakers is just something that's just so. It's just such a special experience, mm -hmm. um, and to find those blends and to put it together, and then to feel collaborative with them too is mm -hmm. something that means so much to us. Um, and we were pretty giddy, especially when we got the first proof for the label for the 100 cents, we were like... Label was tight. Oh my God. All their labels are, but we collaborated. It's, it's yeah. pretty awesome. And it just, it looks really cool. And um, it's a fun, you know, we get to have fun and, um, you know, I mean, they would have done something else with that juice. So, but it's still, mm -hmm. I think, um, kind of that collaboration is really great. Yeah. And that they're not private labels on a wine they made we go out and make it with them and that's the mm -hmm. blend they aren't even doing on their own mm -hmm. yeah. um, which is something i have a lot of experience with and that's why i wanted to when stacy said name three things right now that we're not doing that we want to do i was like oh, make cuvées that's yeah. what we need to do and so we're looking forward to how we can continue that um with them and and other winemakers and um I, mm -hmm. I mean for us it's about creating a great experience for our customers mm -hmm. Um, and then establish just strengthening our relationships with winemakers. I mean, when you go out and barrel taste with, you know, with uh, Evan and we, you know, we got to hang out and like have dinner afterwards. And it's just that some of that is just the, again, talking about why we're even in wine. I mean, that's like, that's it. Like, yep. 
is sharing, yeah, uh, sharing sure. a meal, sharing good bottles, getting excited and, and having conversation. And just, I mean, it's just like, I couldn't think of anything more like perfect. Mm -hmm. um, That's and, the reason and, to do it. Yeah. And so we get to do that for work. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the cuvées. That's important to us. Yeah, uh, that's part of the growth. Sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for your time today, for your hospitality, yeah, for your stories. I had a great time, even with some fun interruptions. And uh, <laughs> we'll go ahead and let you guys off the hook. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.